I'm Elena Lansberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. And today I have a very special guest with me, Gladys Ocosta Vargas, who is a dear friend. Gladys has been working for as long as I've known you, Gladys, on women's rights and children's rights and NGOs from Peru to Colombia. You were the gender advisor for UNICEF and then the UNICEF representative in Guatemala and Argentina, and then the UNIFEM and now UN Women representative for Latin America and the Caribbean. And most recently, and I should offer you congratulations, you just got re-elected as a member of the CEDAW committee as a CEDAW committee expert since 2015. Gladys, welcome. It's so wonderful to have a conversation with you. Thank you, Lana. I'm also very happy to be with you today. We've known each other on and off for so long. And when I first started at a relatively young age working at UNIFEM at the UN on women's rights, you were always somebody who was working and bringing women's perspectives and women's rights, partly in the region, but also internationally bringing it right into the Byzantine corridors of the United Nations. (laughs) And it was always so inspiring to speak to you. And I wondered if we could start there. How did this passion for women's rights and children's rights start for you? Well, this is a very difficult question because it takes the heart of my life. Right. <laughs> I think I began to be a feminist when I was in trouble in my family with, with my husband. Because before that, I thought that women and men were equal and that in general, women were a little bit exaggerated when they were asking for more rights. This was my first thinking when I was 18 years old. I was in France and I was looking at the feminist movement there with a little suspicion, saying, that these people, they don't know poverty. That's why they are asking for other rights. This kind of thinking I have. But when I was in trouble in my personal life, I began to understand that I needed to think differently. First of all, I began to have trouble when I was looking for work and I was expecting my third child. And um, I got the interview and everything. At the end, the person who was interviewing me said, oh, I am so sorry that you you are getting a baby because I, we cannot take you. And then I said, I remember clearly, I will not be like that every, this will end in four months. And she said, no, but the baby and you are going to be, you know, divided between work and home. No, I'm so sorry. And I understood that it was not me, but it was for all women. (laughs) And then uh, when I wanted to be separated from my husband, it was very, very difficult. He took the children and I was fighting before a court for them. And this was really almost three years. And I I began to think I 
I have to change my mind. There is something wrong here. I didn't understand the world. At that moment, I began to study law. And it was, for me, with other eyes. And I began to work with Fertistan and all of that. I changed totally my perspective. Many women come to the realization that inequality is not personal. It's systemic. And still go on to lead their lives in various rich and important ways, but don't immerse themselves in the struggle for women's rights. How did you make that transition? I think that the first thing was that when I was in the court in Lima, I began to see how women were so in difficulty related, understanding how the system works, and discussing with them there on the line when, where we are. And this is something that for me was a big impact. It was at that moment the organization of the second feminist encuentro in Peru. And I said, ah, this is something that I would like to support. And then I began to work in a commission, economic commission for this feminist encuentro. And uh, I met everybody from the movement, the feminist movement in Peru. And I went to work with Rajasthan. And it was 10 years, very intense 10 years there doing crazy things in favor of women. We were pioneers at that time. We were few, very few, but it was the beginning of a very strong women's movement that we have now. And can you explain to me why that was so important, why that had such an influence on you? Well, you know, I did my studies in France and I was four years there between 18 and 22. But when I came back to Peru, I think I forgot a little bit what I was living before because Peru is a very intense country. And at the same time, you feel that you are in a unique world. Fergistan was for me a way of looking that women could have different kinds of experiences even if we have um, violence against women, even health issues or problems in the school, in the work life, but in a totally different context. And this was, for me, very touching because I understood why it was so important to link different kinds of women. I think I had a very, maybe, Western way of looking things because of my studies in France. And then I think that Pakistan was a world of different kinds of women, you know, different cultures, different language. It was the beginning of something that I was living connected to international movements. That takes me to your work over so many years with different UN agencies. I also worked at UNIFEM before you came for many years, and it was exhilarating and humbling, but also very sobering because there were limitations on what you could do as part of the UN system. How did you feel, how did you navigate working within the UN agency system, promoting women's rights and children's rights? Mm. This is a very important part of my reflection, I think. One of the things that I brought to UNICEF with me was that I didn't want to hide my thinking. I said from the very, very beginning to my supervisor, I remember discussing about maternal mortality, and he said, are you ready to lead this issue in UNICEF and the region? And I said, with, with one condition, I have to say the truth. And the truth 
is that in Latin America and the Caribbean, women die because they don't have right to abortion. And I know that for UNICEF, this is an issue, but I cannot speak about maternal mortality if I don't explain this, because more than 35% of deaths in Latin America and the Caribbean are connected to this prohibition of legal abortion. And at the very beginning, he was a little bit reluctant, but he said, you're right, you have to say the truth. Say the truth. And this was the, at the very, very beginning, and we had a wonderful experience doing that. And the second thing is that I had a wonderful supervisor at that time. He was very respectful of what my thinking, and I said, you cannot continue to work only on children's rights. You have to incorporate CEDO, because otherwise it's impossible for a child to be protected by the mother that is not respected. And they accepted that. And this was really the door for me to do marvelous things in UNICEF, including a very difficult case that we had on sexual harassment. And I remember my regional director said, do you want to deal with that? I said, yes, of course, I will. And then we were a very serious team. Of course, this person was dismissed. I was very, very happy with that. Yeah, yeah. And that's not always the case, as as we both know. We could spend hours talking about the work that you did in the agencies, but I, I really want to speak to you about CEDAW. For many people, that's not a familiar acronym, but CEDAW is, of course, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And it's the convention that many, many, many countries, member states of the United Nations, have signed on to. And the CEDAW Convention has a committee which meets to hear reports from countries on how they are doing signatories to the convention on the state of women's equality, substantive equality in their countries. And the CEDAW committee has the possibility to ask questions and to engage in a dialogue with the representatives of each country that reports. And I had the great privilege to work both on the convention and with the committee over many years. And it's an incredible switch, I think. I, I can't quite imagine it myself to be on one side of the equation where you're a women's rights advocate, and then to be in this very different position of sitting on the committee, which oversees the implementation of this convention. And I'd love to hear what your insights and experiences have been. Oh, thank you, Lana. I think this is the first time that I'm reflecting publicly on this because, well, now I'm ending my fourth year and I, I begin to have many reflections. First of all, I really would like to say that I recovered after almost 15 years in the UN where you cannot say too many things because the states <laughs> and things like that, you know. I said, well, now I'm recovering my voice, my oh. real voice. Because <laughs> in, the, in the committee, the thing is that you can really independently, as an expert, say the things that you think, of course, in the context of what the CEDO is, which is the most important legal instrument in favor of women's rights. When a country ratifies CEDO, they expect from us, the committee, criticism and, of course, also support. Your voice is not your voice. This is one of the things for me that was very, very interesting. When you sit there, you are not you. You are you and all your experience and all what you represent, your country, your region, and the experiences of women in the world. 
and you act differently, then your voice is different and you can tell clearly your ideas to the states about what they are doing in their country in favor of women or what they are not doing. Also, I think that it's very empowering to listen to the civil society differently because when the committee listens to women's groups, feminist groups, and the voices of individual women that go to the committee, you are really introducing the reality of women's lives in this international legal framework. And your response to the states is connected also to what these women are expecting from the committee because they are coming there looking for justice because they know well that the voice of the committee is a powerful voice in front of the state reporting about they are doing or they are not doing. This is a political experience, but at the same time, it's a very interesting way of doing a kind of activism in favor of women. You really can help the country in doing a very good dialogue, a constructive dialogue, the moment when the country is reporting, but also preparing a very good document, which is the concluding observation. Uh, the concluding observations are the result of this dialogue. It is also something that is very, very important for women's movement because they can work using this concluding observations. And I think it's a way to be in history, if I can say something like that. Mm -hmm. It's not like a court where the committee can say to the government, you must do this, you must do that. As you say, there are these concluding comments, these concluding observations that the committee gives to the government to say, here are the ways in which you can improve. Here are the ways in which you're falling down on women's equality. And I wonder if you've seen an evolution because now I think it's quite normal for women's groups to bring information to the committee. Have you seen an evolution in the way that the committee receives information, asks its questions, and how the governments respond? We are in a new moment. In the committee, I think we have several uh, important issues to be debated because, of course, we are understanding the convention more broadly with time. Time is helping us. This convention now has 30 seven years. We are interpreting the convention with the signs of our time now. Then we have the general recommendation on different issues that are very, very important. I was involved in the five last general recommendations, and I have to tell you, these are really a doctrine, a legal doctrine for women's rights. For example, on rural women, on violence against women, natural disasters, and climate change, access to justice. In all these discussions, you see how the committee is understanding the deep influence that we can have on countries. And I think that the advancement is incredible. If you look at the concluding observations now, they are much more focused than before. I wonder if you could just explain the importance of having substantive equality for women at the heart of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Substantive equality means understanding the diversity of women, because what is equal for you and me is not equal for other women. One of the things that for me was always very important is the definition of discrimination in this convention. Because we need not only recognition of the rights, 
which is the first thing, of course. And we are always fighting for this legal recognition of the right. But we need to look for the realization of these rights in a concrete way. And concrete way for us is two issues. It's one, the exercise of this right, which means access to justice, and the enjoyment of this right, which means social change. For you to enjoy the right without looking for a, a judge to rectify the situation, it means that the society has changed in favor of women. These three levels are interconnected and they need to be together if we want to have substantive equality. Because in general, there is a tendency to see separately the things. And it's impossible because we will have just a part of equality. And the discussion between equity and equality is a terrible discussion because in general, people who want to have the expression equity in general, they are looking to have equal opportunities for men and women. But we know well that equality is much more than equal opportunity. It's really a different way of living. I think that we really need to be prepared to discuss with government in these three levels. Because, of course, one thing is to have the law. But for example, I, I will put the example of, of Chile. They changed the law. This is just after fight for, for years and years. They changed the law and they have legal abortion in three cases. But then, now that they have a new government, they are proposing a new law on the conscious objections you know I had, there is a word in english right. conscientious objections yeah exactly yes because now women have the right in theory but when they go to a hospital they say oh no there is here we have objection of conscience we cannot do this and women are going to one place to another place and in all the places are saying that they are conscious objection of conscious objections you know sometimes you have to look into details to protect the rights of women and that's why it's not only opportunity not only a legal right but the connection what is happening in life and there's a beautiful explanation of what substantive equality is all about. Okay, so now I'm going to switch gears completely with you, Gladys. Since you and I met and spent time together, you've had three grandchildren. And one of the things that I've been exploring with the grandmothers that I've been speaking to who are involved in so many different things and so many walks of life is how becoming a grandmother changed them or informed their approach to the work that they were doing or the activism they were engaged in. And I wonder if it changed something in you or for you when you became a grandmother. Very good question. <laughs> well, first of all, I think the most important issue for me is that this grandmotherhood <laughs> has helped me to understand better my own motherhood. And when I am with my grandchildren, I see my children when they were small. And I think of them. Then I see the difference. I can see, oh, I did wrong this. Oh, that was good. You know, because <laughs> I can compare. <laughs> well, of course, it's a question also. Uh, I have to be careful because we women tend to be so critical about our life. I want to be a happy grandmother and enjoy their presence instead of going to deep thoughts about motherhood. <laughs> right. But at the same time, it's important 
possible. And I'm very happy to share with the mothers my concerns and also to discuss with them about education of children. And this is very, very interesting for me. I think grandmothers, we need to spend time with our daughters or daughters-in-law. In my case, it's daughters-in-law because my daughter, Gabriela, decided not to be a mother, at least until now. And then I only have two daughters-in-law that are my daughters. And then I discussed with them many things that it was my concern when I was a mother of small children. And uh, I think it's this exchange, intergenerational exchange about motherhood. It's so interesting because we tend to think that our histories as something that couldn't change, that was like stone. But in fact, there were so many factors, not only you in their education. And what you think it was not good, maybe it was corrected by other person. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to feel guilty about that. Mm -hmm. I accept better that things go better little by little. It's a social change in that case that helps a lot. You want to do things, but if the society is not ready for that, it's very difficult. We did the best that we could do. You have to accept that there is a history bigger than you. And this is something that for me is very pleasant. Because so much of your life and your work, and they're inextricably linked, I know, has been consumed with equality for women and ending discrimination and human rights for all. Has becoming a grandmother informed or given you a different lens through which to see the kind of women's rights work that you did in the past or that you're doing now as a member of the CEDAW committee? Ah, this is difficult to answer. One thing that I see, but I don't know if it's because I am a grandmother or because I am older, you became maybe more tolerant regarding the pace of change in the sense that you have to accept that there are limitations in your work. For me, it was always difficult to accept the limitations. I was so obsessive, if I could say, <laughs> to achieve something that when I found limitation, it was very difficult for me to accept. Sometimes it's not possible. What I hear you describing is like a special kind of patience and perspective. Yeah. There aren't a lot of spaces to have these conversations and reflections on where women find themselves as older women, as grandmothers, and how a lifetime of experience has shaped them and where they are now. Absolutely. So much of what you have to say is profound, Gladys. And I want to congratulate you again on, on being reelected. I think we all need you right where you are on the committee. Oh, thank you very much, Ilana. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.